Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? It's yet another episode of Help from Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast made for and listened to Keyforge friends all around the world. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, the irritable colonist, and I am joined, as always, by my Archon pals. We got the wheeling Keyforger who laughs at indolence. What's happening, Rick? Hey, what's up? And, of course... Coach Boulevard Paper Fight of the Withering Lagoon. What's the haps, Blake? Hey, what's going on? That's a great intro, Alex. I love that. <laughs> it just occurred to me, uh, you know, we, we all go by a handle that might as well be an Archon name, so why not spice it up a little bit? Yeah. Definitely. Busy times for Keyforge, as always. Um, Rick and I played uh, a bunch uh, over the course of last week, but Blake, you actually went down to the States to play in a prime championship. Where was that at? It was uh, in Lacey, Washington. And it was a fantastic event. It was at Gabby's Olympic Cards uh, in Lacey. And the store owner, Gabby, was fantastic. A great culture and atmosphere at the store. She's owned it for over 30 years. And it's just a really well-set-up gaming environment and an amazing store. There was just so much stuff in there, like action figures, collectibles, games. Like, you name it in terms of the nerd world, she had it. It was, it was a fantastic shop. And the gaming actual place where we played the tournament was on a second level that had a little like coffee bar built into the area so as you're playing you could grab snacks and a coffee which was pretty cool that is super cool what was the format for the event it was adaptive archon and how did you find that it was great it was very different than what you expect to see in an archon format as it seemed um i don't know the the total stats but just from my own view and what happened in the top eight was uh, an AOA dominant meta. Really? Yes. It was very interesting. There was in the top eight, half the decks were AOA three were world's Clyde and only one called the Archon's deck. Okay. I got to ask based on that, was there any of the AOA archetypes we know like are really competitive that were represented amongst those four? Were we seeing like Genka decks? Were we seeing Brig decks or were they just super good, super strong AOA decks? There was, um, well, half of them were works. There was two Martian Generosity key abduction decks. Yeah, uh, that's out of the four. Pretty expensive. The other ones were the other ones were not uh, of that nature because I had one of them, and this gentleman Joel had the other. Interesting, very interesting. I, 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 it's one of those things that's been going around. Um, I. I, I subscribe to the Reddit uh, uh, subreddit about Keyforge. And frequently what people say is that AOA is just not as powerful as either a call of the archons or worlds collide. But the, I think the caveat to that is that the top tier AOA decks can go and the ones that can go can really go. Yep. And I think that, you know, uh, it, it's still going to be a while before we see, you know, more tournament results shaking out from worlds collide. But I, I think that AOA might be getting a little bit of short Worlds shrift. Collide won the tournament. Did it really? Yeah. The the AOA, so the reason why there was a theory why AOA was here is because it's adaptive. And since people wrote off AOA and didn't play mm. with it as much, it's better in the adaptive format. So that's that was part of the theory. Uh, it wasn't the reason why I brought mine. And I know uh, Dan, he brought his, he was one of the people with a Genka deck. And he brought it because his deck was just really complicated to play and you could easily get excited and misplay because of the Martian generosity key abduction. So he, he brought it just to bamboozle his opponents when they had it. And it seemed to work for great success for him. Mm, that's uh 
it's a hell of a combination to try and work. Um, I know yeah. just because recently I've been messing around with a Brig deck that I had in my stacks. It, it's like it seems like it's an easy thing to play. It's really not. Like it takes a lot of understanding timing and really watching out for the things that punish it to uh, to make it work properly. But once you got it down, you know it's it's not nothing. And that's not even as complicated as Martian Generosity Key Abduction decks. So good. No, and the first so my very first match, I went against the other Martian Generosity Key Abduction deck, and it was actually a times two Martian Generosity Woo. Key Abduction deck, and it was insane. He literally like first game, I thought I was running away with it, and then suddenly it's just like two keys in one turn. Because he, he was holding his whole deck in his hand with that. And then when I played it, I've played a ton of Genka decks. So uh, I basically knew how to pilot it. And I, I went into the same combo and just was like, was able to Mars first proliferate with the key abduction. And I was just like, that's, I'm pretty sure that's game, right? Because I just call and then I can pull it. And he's like, yep, that is because he knew his deck. And so we went on to game three. We we finished our first match. It was 90 minutes and we were done with um like, 50 minutes left or something wow we did all three decks like three games super fast and i managed to beat him when because he took his deck for 13 chains and i just basically got out my restaurant guntus and then stopped him from calling mars oh. and it delayed enough that i could push ahead and that's all it was he, he told me he's like you literally dropped that at like the perfect time or i had it and so I was able to just lock it out in terms of not being able to get the combo and the deck relies on that. So it worked out well for me. And he told me that he has 21 chains on that deck from just regular play, taking it to chain bound, which I thought was pretty insane. Okay. Uh, th that's interesting because there was that interview with uh, the, the fellow who had the top uh, most chain deck, the highest power level deck. And I believe it was also Mars related. So, hmm. I think that one was double key abduction as well. So maybe the same deck. Who knows? Yeah. Woo. Yeah. But one, one interesting thing about adaptive is sometimes uh, you don't want a really straightforward deck that's easy to pilot. You want to have something that is a little more complicated. And I think that might be the reason why there was less Call of the Archons because I think it somewhat has a reputation of being a little bit more straightforward play. Like obviously as you get into it, there's more complicated lines, but you can see how a deck can play in Call of the Archons a lot more easily than AOA and Worlds Collide. Yeah, it it's definitely a li more linear strategy. Mhm. Mm totally. So agree. that was I thought that was part of the reason why we there was a less of a coda showing. Like as far as I knew, um I only played against one coda deck the entire day. And I didn't and I knew and I personally only knew of one other person who had a coda deck. Oh, no, sorry, two. But that was like in a 25 person tournament. I think the rest was like Worlds Collide and a lot of AOA. Yeah, I'm super torn because we have our own prime championship, uh, another one here in Vancouver coming up next month. And yep. I'm extremely torn about what deck I'm going to bring because I believe that one is also Archon Reversal, unless I'm mistaken. Is that correct, Blake? Uh, adaptive, you mean? Sorry, Adaptive, yes. yes. And I'm super torn just because on the one hand, I know the deck I want to bring, but my worry is that it's too straightforward for somebody else to to use against me. So uh, I guess my my whole thought is maybe I could bring it and then just try and game the the chain bidding process so it puts them in a disadvantaged position. But I mean, it'll probably depend on what kind of decks I'm playing against. It's it's a, a very interesting and deep level of strategy that comes down to when it comes to bidding chains. Yeah, I think you need to start chaining that deck and start seeing um, how it works, which is great because that's what we were talking about as I suggested the uh, last night, actually, that we need to start having more of a so to speak, like a one deck challenge where we bring a deck and let's try and load chains. And the only way you can switch the deck out is if you have a losing record 
for the evening. And other than that, we commit to just not bringing a new powerful deck, but stick with one and let's see how we can ride it to the wheels fall off, so to speak, and and get that experience of understanding chains. Because we've really gone away from that since the kind of beginning of how the game was played. Yep. Absolutely true. And I think, you know, uh, in as much as during the, 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 the legendary period between the release of Call of the Archons and AOA, there was that that whole lengthy period where you just wanted to play the same good deck over and over, the same small stable of good decks. And now it's like every week I just want to play something new and different because I like the variety, but it doesn't train you with a single deck. And as we all know, you know, if you put in the reps with a deck, you're going to see the results in terms of your understanding of how to play it and your true understanding of its power level in comparison to other good decks. Yep, it's very true. All right. Um, we're going to have some new segments on the show coming up in the following weeks. Uh, we've decided that uh, we wanted to introduce some new stuff for the year 2020. But this week, we're going to go with one of our old standbys, one of our old classics. Rick, why don't you take us through a Would You Rather? Okay. Today, we've got a double Would You Rather because it's combo week. First off, we have Igon the Green, four power Brobnar creature, giant, destroyed trigger. Purge, Igon the Green, return an Igon the Terrible from your discard pile to your hand. Igon the Terrible, 8 power, Grobnar, play. If Igon the Green has not been purged, destroy Igon the Terrible. Fight, steal one. Or, we've got Xenos Bloodshadow, 4 power, no armor, creature from Untamed, Human Witch, Elusive, Hazardous 6, Poison, and Skirmish. We've got Toad, 1 power, no armor, Toad cannot reap. Alex, what do you say? All right. If we were making this decision purely on flavor, it would be Toad in Xenos Blood Shadow because Toad has my favorite flavor text in probably the whole game. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Toad is the saddest looking creature. He's just this, this sad looking Toad. Um, he's a one power creature, as Rick mentioned. And his flavor text is Prince Derek stared at his warty feet. His mission was not going well. Hilarious. Suggests so much, gives <laughs> us a little bit of background on what's going on in the uh, the Crucible. I guess, though, ultimately, my big problem is that if you are comparing these two cards, or two sets of cards, then what you have to look at is the fact that the Igon set, you will get use out of Igon the Green that you will not get out of Toad. So... I mean, Xenos Blood Shadow is an awesome creature, but being paired up with Toad is not only the cost of having a bad creature that can't reap, it's the opportunity cost of not having any other better card. So I think if we're purely looking at it from that perspective, I go with the Igons because I know that I can at least get maybe a reap or a fight that will be effective out of Igon the Green before Igon the Terrible comes out. Whereas with Toad and Xenos Blood Shadow... Toad is basically a useless dead draw card, and I cannot stand having those in my decks. That's that's my thinking on it. Blake? Oh, well, I guess it's going to be a heated debate here because I'm going the other direction. I actually like Xenos Blood Shadow and the Toad combo, and the reason being is because Xenos Blood Shadow literally can take anything out. It's it's just puts in work. You basically can't attack it. If you can make it even bigger... It's it's just impossible to deal with without a complete removal card that just says, like, get rid of a creature. And the difference for me between the two is that if you get Igon the Terrible in your hand, it literally just is a dead card because you actually can't do anything with it. It has to be destroyed as soon as you play it. Fair point. So 
That's the reason why I don't like that. And the other reason why I don't like Igon the terrible as a general card versus an Igon the green is because they're so conditional in the order in which you mm-hmm. can get them. And one could be on the, like, I just feel there's too much to make it work. And the, the fight ability is great. Like Brobnar stealing is not a common thing. So that is definitely a cool thing. But I find that you can play both Toad and you can play Blood Shadow. Either or works. Granted, Toad is a pretty useless card, but there are things in Untamed that reward creatures. Like if you have a Flaxia, for example, that's going to account for your creature count, which is going to allow you to maybe hit off Flaxia. You have things like Harmonia, which again, if you have less creatures, a Toad is another thing that is going to help make Harmonia go off. I feel within the realm of Untamed, those cards actually contribute to the end game more and what end team wants to do where I feel I It's like you literally have a card in hand that you know you're playing and is not going to do anything. Granted toad may not do anything, but if you have shadows, you then have a reap ability with your Vindas to maybe trigger that you, if you have the fact that toad can literally just fight into something that has a war to get rid of that. So it, I feel like it does have value. You don't need to just reap with it. And it's a card that can be used. So I feel like it's going to die no matter what. So it really doesn't matter. It's just getting out of your hand and it's on the board. And once it's on the board, you have more options. You know what? That's a legitimate argument. I want Rick to say his piece on what his preference is, but I, I have other things to say on that. Actually, I've never played with either combo, so I don't really know. But Blake's argument, yeah, that's pretty uh, convincing. It's compelling. And it is very compelling. And I just... Xenos Blood Shadow, I just love the look of it and I just want to play with it. So I think I would go for that combo as well. Well, Rick, I got news for you. I'll give you a deck with it because I, I'm not even joking when I say this. I think I have like seven or eight decks with Xenos Blood Shadow. It's just wow. ridiculous how many I have. Well, thank you very much in advance. Yeah, so I'll give you one so you can see what it's like. Blake, don't you have a deck that has that combo twice? Two Toads, two Xenoses? Yeah. It's a terrible deck, but yes, it does. <laughs> oh, it, wow. It has, so it has two Xenos Blood Shadow, two Toads, and two Vineapple Tree. It's the weirdest deck ever. Did you get that in a sealed tournament? Yeah, I did, and I thought it was good. And so I, I was playing it in Sealed Survivor, and I kept it as my backup good deck, and boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. Um, I think that board states are too volatile um, in Keyforge for awesome good creature at a cost of having a dead draw card to ever be that good. So that kind of applies to both. Um, Mm -hmm. Less so than I think in Coda, but still to a certain degree in Worlds Collide with all the different kinds of removal tools that we have in the game right now. I I honestly oftentimes look at uh, uh, just wicked good creatures. And if they have a crazy, like, you know, drawback to them, it's almost always a turnoff for me. Like in extreme cases, you get things like NARP and it's just because they're, it's not hard to get rid of creatures. Like barring some fairly extreme circumstances or you having a really terrible deck, it's never going to be that hard to get rid of a really like powerful threat. You might have to play a little bit to get there, but I've never felt like board control was a thing that was necessarily, you know, super lacking. I guess, in any mm-hmm. given set. So my feeling is, you know, given the choice, I would rather not have either the Igons, even though I love them for flavor, or Xenos and Toad, even though I love Toad for flavor, just because awesome creature at a big cost of, like, opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, 
you know, those cards are taking the place of other better conceivable cards that might have uh, more value to you, I, I wouldn't take them. But, you know, I, I think your argument was very compelling, Blake. Yeah, the the other thing I, I want to just, since we're on this this kind of, I guess they're the the procedurally generated aspects of of the Keyforge. Because when one, that's I think that's what that symbol basically is. It's a procedural generated symbol because when it always, that symbol links to something that when this exists, it's possible for this to exist. So I do like the combos. I obviously think, and I don't think anyone is going to argue with this point, that the time traveler and help from future self, having a card that has an action associated with it, I feel like that's what Ortanu was trying to build on that. But for some reason, Ortanu just never stuck. But I have to say, I want to see more of the time traveler, help from future self, like that sort of combo of procedurally generated cards where you're getting a lot of value. It does a really unique thing because I think most people will put those combos of cards in their top five for sure top 10 cards that exist in Keyforge that they would love to have in a deck yeah rick we already know yeah we yep. know you rick. <laughs> i'll take more of those decks gladly time traveler was such a great unique quantity in in the early game as well like it felt like such a unique and awesome thing same with the horseman and it is kind mm-hmm. of weird that we've gone from two cool cards that do something paired together to this idea of and I guess you kind of have that with Hide and Vellum in Logos yeah. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, That's uh, a good one, too. That is really cool. I love those guys because it's so, like, it's tricky to play around and you have to really understand how they work to play around them properly. But I guess uh, it, it kind of sucks to go from two awesome complementary cards to a good card and a crummy card. But, uh, yeah, you know, that'll depend on your loadout as well. Um, we got to try something completely different and completely new to us this past Thursday at our casual night. Blake put together a Keyforge cube. So there's lots to discuss with this, but I wanted to start off with Blake. Can you explain how you put this thing together? Because I didn't understand it all until we actually sat down to start drafting this thing, how it was going to work. Yeah, so there's there's a couple out there. Um, there's there's basically two versions of a Keyforge draft. There's the one that Codameron uh, from Bouncing Deathquart created, which is a single card draft where you're drafting one card at a time, like you would in Magic: The Gathering. And then there's the other one, which is you draft on houses. And I honestly couldn't find any information on it, so I kind of had to just come up with my own idea of how I wanted to draft houses. It people say it's pretty straightforward, but I think there are parameters that you can used to make it less uh well it's it's not as intuitive as i thought like when i was putting it together it took a lot of work but i have so many decks i'm not using it was a great opportunity to kind of start building this so the parameters i used for this was i first went through my collection starting from the bottom i reverse ordered my my collection in decks of keyforge and i started looking at the the ones that were ranked lower that i was not going to use for reversal And I just started looking at the houses individually and I kind of marked it as if it had a house score on SAS of 20 plus, then it got brought into the mix of potential candidates. So I made a spreadsheet and started putting the deck name, what house met this category, and then created a spreadsheet. So that was step one. And then after that, I started noticing as I was going that I was starting to get some houses that were like SAS 24 and up. So I kind of realized that they were less common because I wasn't grabbing the top half of my collection. It was I don't think there was anything above 64 SAS rated deck, but there were some really good uh, houses that existed within that. So I kind of decided to part them out. And so I sorted them this way and I kind of just started separating the individual house out of 
the the original deck. And the reason why I chose to go purely on houses is because I felt drafting cards on a singular basis didn't feel very Keyforge. By taking the whole house, that means the algorithm generated this. It still had that feel of Keyforge. It's an all or nothing sort of deal. So you have to make the most of what exists. And, but you get to kind of choose how you create that with this format. I found it to be a really cool experience in that way, um, if only because my expectation walking in was, oh, we're going to get handed a pack of cards and we're going to choose, you know, have to choose 12 from three different houses. And that's going to be the process. And that would have taken one, a very long time. And two, like you said, yeah. not have felt very much like Keyforge and literally being handed a pack of cards that you open up and it has four different houses in it and going, OK, of these four different 12 card houses, which one do I want to pick? The first one's easy because you just grab the one that looks the absolute best. Next one you get handed, you have to go, what's going to complement what I already have and so on. So it made for a really unique analytical experience. Yep. I enjoyed it immensely. So, yeah. And and so to let everyone know how I composed each of these packs, you'll notice that Alex said there was four. So my original plan was to have three houses per pack. And the idea was that each house that existed in there would not not be the same so there'd be no overlapping houses per pack and there'd be one from each set so there'd be one house in there would be a coda house one house would be an aoa house and one house would be a world's collide house that's how i did it and then i got the idea of the fourth house for the simple fact of it being a rare house so this was going to be a house that had a sas score of 24 plus and that would be the very back one is how I put it. And you could tell which one it was because it was be the same set as one that already existed in there. That means one of those was the rare house. So you could choose a rare house. And how it worked is when you got handed that fourth and last house, instead of it being like, and this was the other reason why I wanted four is because I remember when drafting in like magic, you get that last card and it's just like a garbage card that maybe sometimes works, usually didn't. And you didn't really care about it. It was just sitting there. So I had this last fourth house. Instead of being a mandatory pick, it became that it was a swap house. So you could take a house that you already had and swap it out for the one that existed there instead if you thought it would be more advantageous to what you needed rather than be forced to take a house. And that was, I feel like, my original contribution to this idea was using the fourth house and it's a swap house. So at the end of the draft, you got two packs. You're, you had a total of six houses, but you had the opportunity to see eight houses total and decide which of the six you wanted to make up your final composition of your deck. So, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, perhaps obvious but worth mentioning rules. You can't pick the same house twice. You weren't allowed to have, like, say, two logos and one shadow. Yeah, or you were. Like that. Oh, for the deck, yeah. You could choose as many of the house <laughs> while you're drafting as you wanted, but, your yeah, your deck composition had to be three different houses. Yes, that's that's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it ended up being one of these things where, uh, you know, uh, your the evolution of your choices, uh, depending on what you saw, because the first two houses I picked, I remember thinking, OK, these complement each other. And then I got handed something else. And I was like, well, maybe I can pivot towards this to make sure that I have all of the, the proper things that you want the Keyforge deck. Got to have amber control. Got to have some kind of, uh, you know, board control. Um, do I have any bursting? Do I have any other ways of controlling my deck? 
you know, those are all the things that you're looking for. So uh, that evolutionary process and, and not being an experienced drafter in any other card game, it, it really did, you know, sort of add to that feeling of how well do you understand Keyforge? How well do you understand the composition of a good deck? And how well can you create that thing given a set number of parameters? Yeah, I, I found that like the composition as well as I, I thought I understood Keyforge. I thought I got to a moment where I was like, oh my goodness, I better actually look at what I've been taking because what if I'm deficient in something? Because like you start drafting how like, oh, this looks sweet. And then and then I'm like, wait a second. And I ended up having to like pivot out of something that I thought was great. Like I took a Shadows House from Coda that had a ton of printed ember, had Shadow Cells, which would have been amazing in the deck. But in the end, I had to not go with it because I was realizing my creature count was super low and it was going to be a little bit painful if I if I kept it that way. So I ended up taking putting something away that I thought was really good. I think it was the rare house in the pack I took it from too, but I ended up having to put it by the wayside in order to balance the deck. Rick, how did, how did you draft yours? Like, did you have any, what were you thinking as you, as you did it? I, I wasn't thinking the synergy at all. I was just for some reason going house by house. Okay. And it, I thought it was a really good, it looked like a good deck, but it didn't pan out well at all. (laughs) It was still really fun, though. Yeah, the best laid plans, I thought, um, if only because my deck uh, didn't win in the first game that I played, which was against you, Blake, and then I did win against my my uh, game against uh, Rick, and then, you know, it was just sort of on from there. Isn't it amazing how whenever, even if we have a large number of people, we always end up playing each other? Yep. Don't you think that's remarkable? <laughs> yeah. It always seems to yeah, work that out funny. that way. Um, but it did end up being sort of this very different and remarkable experience. It's something that I want to do again, and I'll be really interested to see if we can start making theme cubes with the idea being that, okay, you know, uh, this is the time traveler cube. Every logos house has time traveler or, you know, ones where you, uh, this is the reversal cube. I love the idea of a reversal cube where you grab like the worst houses out of everything and see if you can make the worst deck possible and hand it to your opponent. I love mm. any kind of, you know, sort of construction with Keyforge that doesn't abandon the the nature of Keyforge, the algorithmical generation of of house composition. Like I think that's so key to the way that the game works. Yeah, I feel like we, like an adaptive version of this would be really cool as well. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, would be amazing. Would. Yep. One one last thing that was really fun with this was um, June decided that she wanted us to basically create names of the deck. So you had to use components that existed in in all three of the houses that you chose, or the decks that compiled your deck. And so uh, yeah, we all we all created interesting, unique names based on what existed already, which was a lot of fun. That was that was a great little flavor aspect. And uh, thank you, June, for for creating that that extra level of of fun for yes. the for the game. Big shouts out to June and everybody who joined us for that session. Um, Always really important to us that we play these non-competitive, casual, environmental games. Mm -hmm. Um, That Thursday night's become one of my favorite nights to go out to and play. As much as I love playing with prize support and things like that, more than anything else, I enjoy playing Keyforge in environments that prioritize fun and exploration. And as our friends on Call of Discovery like to say, the discovery of Keyforge. That is so key to my enjoyment of the game. And if I ever lose that, I feel like I'm not going to want to keep playing it. So thank you, Blake, for for bringing this to the table. And I really look forward to the opportunity that we have to play it again in the near future. 
Yeah, it's it's going to be great. And honestly, last Thursday, there's I noticed that when we do our Thursday games, it actually strengthens the community's bond. Yeah, because you're not trying to like just trounce one another with a, a saucy deck. It's it's that level of fun and and the able the ability to have a more casual table side chat is really important. And honestly, last Thursday I felt like was the best night we've had on a Thursday because we had um, there were six of us doing the cube. There was two people who had who had boxes from the holidays and they literally were opening their a deck by deck and then just not even looking at it and just jamming a game like in their own reversal style, having no idea what their deck has. And then we had another two players practicing for adaptive. So it was such a great environment where where we had everyone doing like different things, but we were just a community together enjoying Keyforge. I I really enjoyed that last Thursday. I think it was one of the best nights we've had in a long time. Same yes, here. it was. All right, we don't have too much more time left on this week's episode, but of course we cannot finish an episode without our titular segment. It's Help from Future future Self. self. Blake, this one's yours this week. Yes, this is, gotta say, this one, I think we've kind of talked about a little bit before, but this was the first time it really hit home for me and I had to really steady myself. And that's the topic of tilt. So when I was playing in the adaptive game, adaptive prime in Lacey I had a situation occur where the deck that I was running I was going against my opponent and all the cards came where everything that worked together wasn't coming together it was just like worst case scenario RNG and I was just like well this sucks and then I saw my opponent's deck and I was like okay this is going to be fine and so he won not convincingly but like enough that it was it looked close but it really wasn't because I wasn't able to do what my deck was supposed to do and then when we swapped decks for the second game, my opponent literally got the god tier draw and the RNG went in his favor with my deck. And it was just like, there's nothing I could do. I knew it was over within like the first three turns because his deck only had one house with a lot of creatures. And I just knew that the board state, I would still need a turn to recover and it could just be taken care of. So I got so tilted that my deck didn't work in my favor. And then when my opponent played my deck, it worked like, god tier in his favor it was just so frustrating to know that there was nothing that i could do and i was just stuck in this moment then afterwards i felt so bad that i was like i don't even want to play keyforge anymore and we're like there's still like another round left in the tournament and it wasn't over but i was so frustrated at that point i did one of the greatest things and this is the whole help from future self because i will do this again if this happens is i stopped playing I was lucky enough to finish with uh, some time left in between rounds. And I went outside. I got some fresh air. I went for a walk. I found a coffee shop, grabbed a coffee, walked back, took some deep breaths, and like really took in the air outside and then came back and kind of took a moment for myself. And then I came back to my next game and it was everything was fine. I was back in the headspace. And that's what you got to realize is sometimes when you're in that environment of a tournament setting, you can really get have a game go wrong for you and it's like one of those things where you didn't misplay it's just the cards will come it's the nature of the game we play there is a randomness to it and the randomness can happen that it's really terrible for the way your game is played and you have to let that go afterwards so you have to figure out your own means of centering yourself whatever that may be and take five ten minutes and do that because you're only going to hurt yourself more if you let that spiral so when you start going on tilt the first step is recognize that you are tilting and the second step is take a step away to allow yourself to recompose because that's going to help you in the next game because we play Keyforge game by game. 
and you don't have to let one go into the next. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The uh, only game I can think of, or the only games I can think of where there's no element of, of chance to them are, uh, you know, chess and go. And there's probably a yep. couple of others <laughs> out there, but those are the only ones that you have, you know, absolute control over what happens um, in terms of what the hand you're dealt, because everybody starts with the same thing. Um you know, it, it is what it is when it comes down to it. And, you know, you have to accept RNG when you play any kind of card game, um, whether it be Euchre or Poker or Crazy Eights or Keyforge. It's always mm-hmm. what it's going to come down to. This has been another episode of Help from Future Self. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash HFFS podcast. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS podcast. I'm Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible and on Twitter and on Instagram. Where can they find you, Rick? On The Crucible at Rickster78 and on Twitter at The Wheeling Keyforger. Blake, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's a BLVD Paper Fight. And I also have my YouTube going, and I just put up a video today on an unboxing of the Italian Worlds Collide deck that the wonderful Scuzzy Gruen brought back for me. So thank you, sir. And that's up there if you guys want to check it out. Hey, when I'm in Italy, I'm Gruen Peloso. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will holler at you next week, Archons. Until then, stay fortunate.